0: Instead of concentrating on making the saw ever more powerful and, and pushing it harder through driving change and leading change and, and telling people about their burning ice, ice uh, burning platforms, I think we now need to look at change as an organism, as, as an ecosystem. Let's say organism. Let's say at a cellular level. And unless that cell has the ability to mutate, then the organism isn't going to advance. So we as leaders, then, need to be giving the cells the skills to mutate.
1: Hello and welcome to Learning Rewired Flash Insights, a selection of key takeaways from HeadSpring's Learning Rewired podcast. 19 years into the 21st century, and it has become almost platitudinal to observe that what got us here in the past will not get us where we need to go in the future. By now, we all know that we are living through an age of unprecedented rates of change. We are all well-versed in narratives about landscape shifts, industry disruptions, strategy redundancies. However, familiarity with the challenge does not necessarily equal a solution. What do we as individuals need to navigate these waters? What skills do leaders especially need to develop to keep their organizations relevant and successful in the 21st century? My guest today is Jim Lawless a leading authority on AQ, adaptability intelligence, emanating from the skills needed to deliver bold, fast change. He has inspired and educated over half a million people on five continents through his mindset-shifting keynotes and his best-selling book, Taming Tigers. Jim doesn't only talk about AQ skills. His appreciation of adaptability has enabled him to become a televised jockey within a year of starting to ride and to become Britain's deepest freediver in just eight months of training. Jim was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society for the Arts in recognition of his business writing and is currently studying neuroscience at King's College London. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Bevan. It's quite a diverse CV. As, as I'm reading it,
0: <laughs> it hits me again. You missed out uh, starting life as a corporate lawyer, but uh, <laughs> that, that is, we'll, move, we'll move over that.
1: Yeah, so uh, good point. So where you find yourself today, I understand, is quite different from where you started as a corporate lawyer. And a primary theme that I'm hearing draw through that is adaptability. Perhaps we should start there. Your personal story of adaptability. What your experience has been of the requirements of the skill. Okay, that's
0: an unexpected starting place. So my experience was of starting a career which I stuck with for five years, having spent six years to qualify, mm. and then realizing that, that that wasn't really the career for me. <laughs> and having to, going through a long period of thinking, well, tough luck because that's your job and that's who you are and that's what you do and that's what starts on a monday and finishes on a friday and you can have the weekend to yourself which is perhaps the industrial age approach as well Mm -hmm. and we'll return to that theme or i will the big change for me the first big change probably the most important for me the most important adaptation was moving on from that realizing that i could and that was the result of a perception shift
1: what was the trigger for the self-examination Oh wow! Really? Okay. Uh, so was, I super. asked that because for many people it's a significant event. Yeah. Sometimes we get hit over the head by life itself, and we're invited to wake up and change something. Was it a radical event like that, or I was hit more? over the head by a station announcement guy. Yep.
0: And uh, not literally. <laughs> and, and, but you, the point you make on a wider note, a macro note before we go uh, micro to me is, is really critical because mm-hmm. usually change occurs, and we only go through that process of metacognition of, of thinking about our thinking and examining where the, where the data is coming from mm-hmm. as a result of a big event. and we either wait for that event mm-hmm. or we find the courage to create it. Mm-hmm. And that's less often what people do. And mm-hmm. that's where I go a lot now professionally is how do we begin to create those events? rather than waiting mm-hmm. uh, and what does it mean to create that for me personally I waited and then the station announcement came it was a Sunday I was heading into the city of London to work and it was a sunny day and we don't get that many, as you are now aware, having come to the UK, we don't get that many here. So uh, it was a beautiful sunny Sunday, so I was off in theory. Mm-hmm. The whole world was wearing flip-flops and shorts and carrying a carry bag with beer or barbecue ingredients and I was wearing chinos and a shirt and heading into the city. And the station announced a announced a train which was going to Brighton, calling at. And for those uh, from other countries, Brighton is a beautiful seaside Mm. town in the UK. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could go to Brighton today? And then I realised that I could go to Brighton (laughs) today. I was entirely choosing, for a whole number of complex reasons, choosing to go into the City of London and work on a contract. So I didn't go to Brighton. I didn't want to let everybody down. I had commitments. But that started a chain of events and a thought process around ownership, which from my personal background wasn't front of mind. Mm. I was tuned in to seeking out an authority figure and making sure that I was... I was acceptable and good. And that was something which I think was very much the industrial age way. We mm-hmm. we were trained to fit in, get a job, keep our heads beneath the parapet. And if we were good enough, we'd keep it until we were 65 and they'd give us a clock and a pension. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that world is gone. Uh, we're still training people to survive in it, but it's gone. And that was a moment when I began to, to go on a different path of self-examination and awareness. Mm-hmm.
1: You use the word ownership there, which yeah. is... A powerful word when we're talking even just about ourselves. It sounds like an easy thing to say, to take ownership of oneself. In your case, what you're describing, almost ownership of one's destiny or ownership of of one's direction and the choices you're going to make into the future. That's not an easy thing to do for many people. What is it that makes it difficult? So no, that's not an easy thing to do.
0: And it's becoming more difficult difficult by the day to do as it becomes more critical to do it because Mm. if we're going to thrive in a time of disruption, we're going to have to own our performance level. The reason it's becoming more difficult in my view is that the narratives spinning around are becoming more and more victim-based. So more and more we're finding there's somebody to blame for Mm. the position that I'm in today. Mm. Now, uh, many people are not subscribing to that many people can navigate their way through that but also many can't Mm -hmm. and so we we begin to have a an issue with resilience anxiety mental health and well-being where people aren't owning and able to see that they can impact on their destiny there's a sense of powerless inability to move Mm. which is being sold really really quite heavily i think one of the reasons it's hard to take ownership is we were trained not to and we're still being trained as i mentioned not to at school we weren't encouraged to own the solution. We were encouraged to get the right answer and repeat it back. Um, It's also just an easy way of being Mm. and a human being will default to an easy way of being. Owning my own destiny, taking up the pen and writing it, requires me to ask, why aren't I acting in a certain way? Why aren't I at a certain place yet? And what would I have to do in order to get to the place I would like to be at? And how testing will that be? Mm. And what if I fail in that, having potentially told other people that that's where I'm going? You mentioned my neuroscience studies at the moment, which are incredibly testing for a humanities graduate alongside work job and parenting. So Mm. so
1: it rings very loudly in my head as you say that. It's a lot easier not to own it. Increasingly, though, in organizations, we are seeing individuals encouraged to claim that autonomy and take responsibility for their own actions and take ownership of their own prospects and their own future and their own development. I've spoken to a number of guests about this balance between empowering members of an organization to lead their own development and their own learning, while at the same time facilitating an environment which allows them to do so in a safe, as safe a way as possible, psychologically. Safe way. So, what I've been hearing in conversations is that what we are taking ownership of is also changing. It's not just the act of ownership itself. Leaders, what leaders are taking ownership of are not just results, it's about the creation of an ecosystem. That allows people to be more empowered to generate better results, not just for themselves, but for the organization. Is that a fair reflection? <laughs> you put it beautifully. I'm going to interview you. I was, no, I mean, completely, completely.
0: That's what we're seeing. And we're seeing it for really good reason. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing it from the Met police. I mean, I was fascinated. How could it be that armed officers can arrive at the London Bridge terrorist incident in the UK, I think two years back, and have ended the threat? From people who were continuing to stab members of the public and other police officers, end that threat within seven minutes of the first 999 call. Where's the getting the guns out of a locked cabinet and getting permission from somebody to take the safety catch off? Mm. So I, I rang one of the senior officers, Deputy Assistant Commissioner who'd been responsible for some of that cultural change, to ask her that question. Mm-hmm. And she was very clear that that decision-making has been pushed now right down the organisation, along with a lot of cultural shift, a lot of training, a difference in leadership approach, in order to give that person who, if they get it wrong, potentially faces a murder charge mm-hmm. just for doing their job... Mm-hmm. So I assumed that she was going to tell, and I asked her, I said, well, you must have, therefore, a senior inspector sits in that minibus with those people every night waiting in case some." No, she said, no, the constable decides. Mm. Now, how do we get to that stage culturally? How do we get to that stage when you think where we come from in that hierarchical, um, potentially hierarchical organisation? So that empowerment that you speak of is critical because that is the only way we can create an ecosystem where the different tentacles can react mm. at the required pace. Mm. The challenge is two sides of a coin. The difficulty is that there's resistance on both sides. One, the empowerers have for years been held accountable for pulling the levers. So for them to take that step away from the lever and deploy a different methodology is extremely brave. Mm. The other side of the coin is that those who are to be empowered, you and me, we've spent, since we were at school, being told to show up perfect, sharp, shiny, polish our shoes, and do what we're told. So we have two sides to the problem. In many organizations now, and I might get some heat for this, I'll speak at around 100 major events a year on top of my consultancy and, and team coaching, exec team coaching work. So that means I get 100 briefing calls from chief execs or Emir regional leaders, who, whomsoever it may be. In those calls, I'll hear about all the efforts that people have gone to from the executive leadership to create empowerment. And of course, some of those, you know, I'm hearing their version. I do understand that. Mm-hmm. This is where the heat might come. I then go to the event... And my job is to help the people see uh, how do we take the lid off our human workings in order to move faster. Then I'll hit the bar with everybody else at the end of the event and listen to their stories. And they will very often tell me about how, yeah, that's all well and good. And they totally get it. It's really exciting. And that's the modern age. And they can see that happening at Google and Netflix. But here, oh, you don't understand. Now, clearly, there's two sides to this
1: dysfunction Mm -hmm. uh, that we're all moving through. I suppose fairly suddenly, distribute decision making through the organization into areas of the organization where traditionally, as you say, it hasn't really resided is one thing. And I agree, it sounds to me like a powerful intention. But if not facilitated in a constructive, supportive way, I can imagine many people in those situations who now feel that they have decision making passed on to them don't necessarily know or feel comfortable and confident in suddenly making those decisions. People resist doing things that are high risk that they haven't had training to do. Mm.
0: Attempting a new behavior in public is high risk. So we are now in a situation where leaders, in my experience, who are able to provide an environment where it is safe to take those risks, can see their people begin to take those risks, who are willing to train their people into what happens under the hood of being a human being when we face risk, try new things, and, and therefore uh, go into an area of uncertainty, uh, what what that means physiologically, what that means mentally, what the different systems are that fire up, and how to recognize them, mm. and realize that you're not in mortal danger of a shark. You're just having a very natural human reaction to putting a new idea across In a meeting, we have a, I hate the phrase, middle management community who we have to support to enable their people to work in this new way. And we have to enable them to work in this new way. And this, beyond the scope of our our conversation, really, other than to highlight it, is a new skill set, a new area of managing risk, and a new area of coaching, but in a a very exciting 21st century
1: way. You, You mentioned metacognition as one of those fundamental skills. Our team's been doing quite a lot of metacognition a lot of work into integrating metacognition into our leadership framework and one of the things that's really struck me which was different from my initial understanding of metacognition this idea of learning thinking about thinking or in another frame learning about learning yeah let's talk about adaptability when we speak about adaptability in this context What is your preferred interpretation understanding of what it means to be adaptable?
0: Let's go right off away from corporate to some of the areas where I've chosen to personally test it just for a moment. I have to adapt my thinking. Because I don't think that a forty-three-year-old guy from London who's never freedived and and has only recently managed to wean himself off twenty Marlboros a day has got much, um, which, which wasn't helped by the by the jocking environment, which was the only sporting <laughs> changing room I'd ever been in. That it has changed now, where everybody was passing cigarettes in the changing room. But but you have to take into account the dietary um, impact. Mm, but mm. the. First step then is thinking, why does my perception say that I can't do this? What does the the true empirical data say? Because actually it's very unclear. There's no empirical data Mm -hmm. to say that I can't do this. There's just a general assumption that you've got to be a young yoga buck who lives by the sea to to pull this off. (laughs) Then I've got to build new relationships because I can't do anything Mm of this nature on my own. And then I have to acquire skills. And the biggest skill in freediving is managing purpose over process, is managing your mental processes so that they don't, run haywire and go into the the wrong circuitry, into the Mm -hmm. algorithm, Mm -hmm. um, and then that fires up and lights up my entire limbic system to protect me from a significant threat. Mm -hmm. uh, Whilst it is the most glorious sport. It's an exercise in meditation and managing emotion. It's a hug at 90 to 100 meters, a hug, the biggest hug you can possibly get from the planet. Uh, One is also in quite a hostile environment with relatively minor room for error in performance. So to go there, I'm going to have to acquire new skills, skills of performance management, skills of breath hold, skills of mental management, mental skills. And then I'm going to have to then, then change my behaviors to go and take the free dive record. You know, it's it's the same. It's a really solid process. So metacognition isn't woolly. It's a really solid process. And this questioning of perception becomes key. So this idea of a coaching culture where everybody becomes more and more in tune through being the coach as the leader, listening to perceptions and challenging them. You cannot do that without asking yourself as you walk away from that discussion, so why did I perceive it like that with my boss yesterday or my more senior customer yesterday? Why did I do that? So it cannot help but introduce a vocabulary and therefore the concepts of perception, the data in the algorithm, how the algorithm affects my behavior, how my process takes over my purpose, and therefore I don't create change. So we, we come into this virtuous circle eventually if we can push this through as a cultural
1: shift we haven't used the word culture but these are cultural shifts i love that and it reminds me of a comment that a guest recently made on this show which was that culture is values manifested as behavior and that really for me really neatly closes that loop that you've so beautifully described that roots towards increasing um, the metacognitive process towards greater awareness, potential skills development, leading to behaviour which is underpinned essentially and in the best cases by values that translate into this culture of continuous development. And they matter because of the context
0: which gives rise to these values. These help me to win, they help us to win and that means we can feed our families and we can make a contribution to the wider community. And for that reason, Mr Boss... I'd like to talk to you about X, which I wouldn't have done a year ago, but you and I are in a world now where we both want to win and we know what we've got to do to win. We've got cultural values that we care about in order to win, which means I'm surely allowed to have this new relationship with you mm. where I talk about what happens in our team meetings on a Monday which kills everybody. Mm-hmm. Is that okay with you? Mm. And the possibility is that it is mm. within that context.
1: That's a new world. Yeah. Jim Lawless, thank you so much. has been a real pleasure. It's been a genuine pleasure. Having. Real pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Flash Insights, a collection of key takeaways from guests on HeadSpring's Learning Rewired podcast. For full episodes from Learning Rewired, as well as access to other episodes of Flash Insights, please subscribe to the Learning Rewired podcast.